This podcast has bad language. Welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia, where we bring you conversations on all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Brad Bianco. Today's guest is my good friend and all-round good dude, Tristan O'Brien. Tristan, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Brad, my friend and all-round good dude yourself. Thanks <laughs> for having me. Um, so this is going to be experimental. This is the first episode that I have not prepared any readings or materials or I've just sort of thought about some things that might be fun to talk about. And you and I have had so many good conversations in the past where I've thought, man, this would be good to get recorded so here we are here we are yeah i feel like every time we catch up we end up some deep place talking about something relevant or not relevant you're definitely uh, that kind of guy (laughs) you too what have you been up to lately man um oh it's a a big and broad question um just working at the moment for a local government helping do some biodiversity community engagement projects doing a bit of outside of uh, tertiary education study probably going to head back into tertiary side of things next year um just trying to get outside as much as possible yeah community engagement and engaging people with the natural environment is something that we've had several conversations about something that we've touched on here and there in the podcast in the past but something that might be a good topic for the podcast so where do we start i mean what are your thoughts one do you think our society is disengaged from the environment yeah, well, I guess it comes down to um, what you define as our society. Um, mm. I think in the Western world, let's take a look. Let's take it local. Let's say the average person living in metropolitan Adelaide. We, well, then, yeah, if it's metropolitan Adelaide, sure. Just look at um, the environment in which we live. Uh, metropolitan, as you said, very much city and building based. Um, we do I think have some nice parklands. We do, absolutely. And I think uh, in Adelaide we're probably pretty lucky because yeah, we have lucky. the ocean on one side and the hills on the other. And for most people, they're both pretty accessible. But even having said that, you know, compared to a life living on the land and, mm-hmm. and feeling the soil between your feet yeah. and the breeze on the back of your neck when you wake up in the morning and the sun on your face and the wind in your hair, it's um, it's probably not as connected as it as it once was or as mm. it could be. Mm. So you would you would imagine that uh, rural folk have more of a connection to their immediate environment? Yeah, and it would be it would be different, of course, and by no means do we want to make any sort of blanket statements about how people live their lives. Um, but I think the nature of, of, you know, say living on an agricultural property where you are probably outside more of the time um, tending to the land... Um, and and being in the elements, I think, is a really a pretty big concept that we could approach from uh, many different uh, levels, not just a human experiential level, but also from a spiritual level. Um, has a lot to do with uh, how we relate to the land and, mm-hmm. and how we value it, and therefore, you know, what comes out in terms of policy from government and and people's desire to protect it or not protect it or have it you know this high on the list of their priorities for the election cycle or or not so 
there, there's definitely a lot to be said about that, and I think it's pretty, it's pretty easy to say as a general statement that the more you're outside mm-hmm. and the more you expose yourself to being outside, yeah. then the more connected you, go, you are. It's literally engaging. Like, you are intera- interfacing, interacting. You know, you're touching it, feeling it, seeing it, smelling it. Yep. All it's, those things. Yeah, it's all the sensorial perception. It's... Yeah. Um, there's a, uh, I guess, a, a concept that most people are pretty well aware of in um, in our sort of society these days, of mindfulness and and being in the elements and feeling those things mm. that you just described, uh, is a very uh, tangible and direct way of touching into mindfulness and kind of recentering, getting back within the body, which. Um, Again, we could take this in a completely different direction and talk about um, patriarchy and, and the type of, type <laughs> of society that we, that we live in. <laughs> it's, there are all these, uh, all these links that come together um, are quite, quite interesting when, you, when yeah. you start to look into I, it. I certainly feel it's easier to be more mindful when I'm outdoors, that's for sure. And there's something that you and I have in common, which is long distance walking, which is something we might get into later. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, not something I've actually talked about very much on the podcast, so mm. maybe I could share a couple of anecdotes of my own. But speaking in broad generalities, people in massive finger quotes here, everyone, the West, living in urban centres, how did we get disconnected? What is your, I mean, you don't have to give me a empirical data set, but what, what's your feel? What's your vibe? Yeah. Uh, um... That's a good question. I mean, obviously, the way we live at the moment kind of comes from, um, you know, colonialist uh, England that came came to Australia in 1788, um, living in very permanent structures, out out of the elements, being mm. protected, and I think that's probably um, engendered a level of comfort, or at least a direction of comfortability that we've been going further and further down mm. from. You know, figuring out how to make uh, evaporative cooling, yeah. air conditioning, yeah. um, you know, all these different types of clothing that we have, very technical clothing, even so that when we're in the ele- elements, we're not actually feeling the elements. Mm-hmm. Um, but people have been doing that forever. That's very human, I would say. I would argue. In terms of protecting ourselves from... Mm, yeah, clothes. I mean... Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean... But I think there is also a line that can be drawn between between highly protective clothing mm-hmm. and and the fact that uh, outside of that you're also putting yourself in a very controlled environment. Yeah, I probably don't want to go too much into that because I'd be talking into an area that I, I don't have, you know, that much learned or yeah. experienced knowledge in, but um, I would draw a distinction there between Indigenous cultures and non-Indigenous cultures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, one of the, just, I was thinking while you were talking, one of the things that Dave Payton talks about often is that when Europeans came to Australia, they found themselves in an environment that was so different than their homeland, but they still tried to impose the European way of living, you know, European Mm. agriculture. Mm -hmm. The seasons. Exactly. And, you know, all of those ways of living were so unsuited to the Australian land and 
yeah, here we are in 2019. Absolutely. Still, still cranking it out. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> hopefully changing sometime soon. <laughs> and we continue to do it. Um, you know, uh, we're looking at the, the length of summer increasing and it's kind of not matching up with what we might expect of a typical European calendar. Um, and we have, you know, the four seasons, summer, autumn, winter, spring. Whereas you look at the Ghana calendar and there are something like 12 seasons and those seasons are more matched to observations mm -hmm. in the environment, mm -hmm. which would be an indication of the change of season for the Ghana people. So it wasn't a strict, you know, 28-day month, okay, now we're switching into the next season. It was that plant is flowering, yeah. that tells us we're in the next season, so we should move yeah. because we know that food will be available exactly. 10 kilometers that way. Inland, yeah. Exactly. So even in that sense, that's a a less perhaps body felt sense as we were talking about before and more an, an observational yeah, it's tied to your environment exactly right so you that's are that's a deep connection that's deep. seriously deep connection. yeah you're changing the way you live based on your environment rather than changing the environment to suit the way that you want to live mm. and yeah that's a that's a very powerful um, uh, way of, of differentiating approaches to who we are on the planet and, and our place within the planet um, again, I don't want to speak for indigenous cultures, but yeah. um, I think it's it's fairly well established around the world uh, the the view of oneself from a Western perspective of of enforcing our way onto the land, whereas yeah. uh, or, or seeing ourselves as rulers of the land, yeah. owners of property. I feel like this comes straight out of Christianity. This is you know, dim man has dominion over the earth's creatures, and that's gotten us into a lot of sticky situations over the last yeah. few millennia. <laughs> yeah, and and that gives us permission to um, to continue doing things the way we want to do them, regardless of all these signs that are telling us that maybe that's not the best way to do it. Yeah. And this actually winds us up in the exact place I was hoping we would get to, <laughs> which is... I thought you had no structure here, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's serendipitous. Um, human ecology... One of the things that I've been thinking about for such a long time is what, not like what is our place in the world. No, what is our place in the e global ecology as a species? Mm. We are just one species, like every other species. Just a very complicated one. Yeah. But just like the plants and animals that we share our environment with have roles and functions and are and part of an intricate matrix it would be completely arrogant to think that we're not part of that matrix too. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that uh, ties in perfectly to, to the indigenous perspective of being part of the landscape. Mm -hmm. And if we do have any dominion over it, it's just that we're caretakers, we're stewards. We're there to look after it rather than to put ourselves you know, at the pinnacle and, and rule over it. I don't know if you're aware of the, the concept of, of deep ecology and, and that's kind of based around that that perspective of seeing ourselves as part of the landscape. As soon as you take that perspective, it, it immediately shifts your attitude towards living in the landscape. Mm. So I think something that uh, a lot of your listeners would probably be excited to, to investigate a bit further um, and perhaps it, it kind of takes people in a direction that they might not expect. Um, I mentioned earlier the connections in with spirituality and use the word patriarchy. 
uh, we can look back at different cultures throughout history and the way that they have been constructed um, or seen themselves in the environment, not not from that analytical, practical perspective, but um, a bit of a deeper listening, if you can. So um, looking inside, feeling the senses, reading the signs in the environment, connecting at that bodily but also intellectual level and and using that as a basis to live within your environment. Mm. Mm. Maybe it's going into an area where you don't have enough experience or don't wish to feel like you're speaking on the behalf of anyone else, but what do you think we might be able to learn from the world's remaining Indigenous cultures about how we can live? Uh, huge amounts. Um, if you take the Australian Aboriginal people, you know, 68,000 plus years of how to live sustainably in your environment, in a really harsh environment in some areas. Mm. Um, and listening, I think, uh, listening is a huge part of being within your environment in a, in a compassionate way. If you can't listen and read the signs of what's mm. happening around you, you can't be in tune with it and you can't respond to it mm. in a an intelligent, reasoned, um, deliberate and conscientious way. Yeah, and I mean, I have some like pretty, pretty personal uh, viewpoints on this. If you wish to share them, you're welcome to. But if you'd like to keep them personal, then that's that's up to you. Yeah, maybe maybe if it comes to that more naturally, sure. I'll, I'll share then. But no worries. Yeah, yeah cool. it doesn't, maybe it didn't feel like the right time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so much we could learn from the heritage of the people that are still holding on to a traditional way of life. Mm. This is a bit of a sidebar, but what do you make of the megafaunal extinctions in Australia? Do you think this is a an aberration in a larger pattern of ecological stability fostered by Indigenous peoples in Australia? Do you think it's like the humans arrive on the continent and there's a turbulent period where ecology has to readjust but the long-term trend is sustainable you know how do you how do you reason um you know the evidence that it's very likely that indigenous australians on their first arrival to the continent almost certainly were a principal factor in the extinction of a whole bunch of species Mm. and those are the only ones we know about they're Mm. probably a bunch that we just don't know about because there's no fossil evidence yeah absolutely I think it's important to recognise that as humans, inevitably, no matter how sustainable we are, we will leave a footprint on the planet. And uh, I don't think it's necessarily about uh, a goal of not leaving a footprint, but perhaps just leaving a softer footprint than than we would otherwise. Um, The extinction of all those animals doesn't seem like a particularly soft footprint. No, but then, you know, if that happens after... 68,000 years I mean I might uh, compare that to what well, we're experiencing at the moment 30. Yeah, and, no, that's a very good point. and seeing 200 species a day going extinct currently it can't be 200 globally. species a day globally that's the 200 species extinct go extinct every day. day so this is just species that we don't know about already like insects in the jungle presumably yeah, I yeah otherwise I find that st- I've heard that statistic before and found it hard to reconcile mm. Um, and I didn't do the due diligence and fact no check have myself. I. No, have I? Yeah. So I'll check that. <laughs> <laughs> but two hundred a day sounds like 
too many. Hugely, but we yeah, are but also I mean, going through the sixth yes, mass extinction event there's in no history. Doubt yeah. There's no doubt. It's just bananas. Yeah. Um, the Anthropocene. I yeah. think it's an incredibly apt term. I've been using it for some time now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. if you were an alien and you came to Earth and took a core sample, you'd find a layer of plastic. Mm. That's pretty telling. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> it's hardcore. A, it's yeah. a literal geologic mark in the <laughs> in the record there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, what's our legacy after this point? You know, we, we have that opportunity now to, to decide and... Um, it's pretty exciting to see uh, what's happening. You were talking about before we were recording the, the marches in Adelaide as a result of the UN Climate Summit and Global Day of Climate Action. Um, Greta Thunberg is this, you know, figurehead uh, around the world of, of, you know, really challenging the established mm-hmm. political um, powers and what a great representation, you know, a mm-hmm. young person, That's a female, right. who's yeah, incredibly inspiring and passionate really exciting stuff and it is we have the opportunity to respond to that right now and hopefully uh collectively as as a species we do yeah Mm. i mean i hope that i actually should say i get a lot of hope from young people like her Mm. yeah me too i think i get most of my inspiration from seeing these young people who uh are, are seemingly so empowered and and will just go out there and and try and make the change, regardless of what other people outside them are telling them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're getting high up Australian politicians telling that they should be in school. And oh man, I don't even want to. <laughs> and it's you know, and they're doing going doing it anyway. It's like f you, you know, like yeah. you're not you can the serving. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, fuck you, you're not serving our interests. Like, but we have to. If you're not going to, we yeah. have to. And this is their world. Yeah, seeing, seeing them do that is fantastic because I, I certainly didn't feel that empowered when I was that no, age. So. But at the same time, I kind of feel bad because they shouldn't have to bear that kind of Absolutely. Mm. You know, that's not fair. No. Yeah. no. The way that I've described it before is intergenerational theft of... I, I, I kind of think of biodiversity as our shared heritage our shared global heritage that it's something that belongs to all of us and like you said the way that we view it is that we're stewards of this heritage you know kind of like a museum curator and unfortunately increasingly so where i am beginning to see my role as a conservation biologist as managing and curating you know the in the same way that someone at the uh, Smithsonian is taking care of ancient Egyptian remnants. You know, as a conservation biologist in 2019, I'm taking care of isolated remnants of biodiversity, mm. curating them much mm. like a museum. Um, it's a fucked up way of looking at it, I know, because it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And, you know, in the same way that great care and expertise is invested into maintaining those museum collections, we really have to take care of and maintain these biodiversity remnants mm. yeah I've, I've never thought about it like that but i really i really like it and i think it's um potentially really useful in a time where we have to reflect that we have so many species that are just isolated in pockets mm-hmm. that without that due diligence and care that you describe you know might not 
continue to exist otherwise. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that's not always the case, that we might have to treat it that way. But um, perhaps at this time, then, that's a really effective way of looking at it. Mm. So we were talking about... One of the things that I'm um, just going back to what we might be able to learn from Indigenous cultures is there's a strong... There seems to be a strong focus on... I want to say indoctrinating, but I don't like the negative connotation that it has, but like indoctrinating the young people into the culture of their environment. Like these are the, as simple as these are the plants you eat, these Mm. are the plants that are medicine, all those kinds of Mm. things. That kind of learning between the generations, you know, we've lost that so long ago in our society where you know, it's the rare... We, we, we rely on people like David Ambarra. You know, that's why... I think that's why he's such a... He's, like, almost like a, you know, modern-day Western shaman, in mm, a way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah he so. creates the um, sort of mystical around, around the nature, which is really engaging for people yeah. to, to interact with. And so one of the things that we could learn is how do we communicate those things? How do we integrate those aspects back into our life? So the question I have is... How do we re-engage people with their mm. environment? Um, I mean, for me, the, the key is really to just get out and start observing. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, and I'm probably, I don't do that as often as I would like to. I live in suburban Adelaide as well with intentions to, to not do that sooner <laughs> rather than later. But um, just being outside in the environment gives you the time and the space to start to observe um, noticing the interactions that occur all around you, not just you know between a honey eater that comes and, and pollinates the flower and takes food as its um, resource, but also between yourself and the environment and, and the effects that you have on the environment and how it affects you. And that kind of comes back to the deep ecology side of things. You know, what is the effect that being in a certain place has on the inside for you mm. as well? Because um, that kind of um, translates that that barrier that we often see ourselves as separate. my body being separate to what's out there, whereas really it's it's all interconnected. Yeah, it's all um, and as soon as you start to see that interconnectedness between everything, that's I think where the the compassion for other species comes from, because you see um, nature as this extended community of yourself. Um, mm, that's beautiful. So that that connection part of it, I think, comes really from being out in, in nature as much as possible and not doing anything, not necessarily needing to go and identify that plant as a Pacris impressa, um, but, but just observing and not just observing externally, but observing internally as well, what's happening in that relationship from the outside to the inside um, and, and starting to draw those, in, those connections between everything because they're, they're infinite, they're really infinite, mm-hmm. they're everywhere. Um, as far as practicable things we can actually do, is it just enough to take someone out and say, all right, go for a walk? Is that, I guess that's the most basic connection is just being there. But if we're thinking about, like, all right, how do we actually begin to shift our society to be a more ecologically engaged one? What actions can we take, in your humble opinion? (laughs) Um, 
I mean, obviously sharing that with other people once you've experienced that yourself, sharing it with other people. Um, I used to live at an outdoor education centre in Victoria, which was based around sustainability education and, and providing the opportunity for young students, kids, young people to come out and develop that connection for themselves. So if you can provide that opportunity and capacity yeah. Yeah, for other people, then, and then they can do that again for other people. For me, that's really the most fundamental place where it begins because uh, people will only ever be spurred to do action at a, a higher level than that if they have that yeah. fundamental base level of Absolutely. connection. And that, that other action might take the form of you know protests in the street for, for climate action. It might take the form of going to study ecology at university, mm-hmm. becoming some sort of land manager, you know, owning a bit of property, practicing permaculture or regenerative agriculture practices. It can take you know myriad forms, and that's kind of the beauty of it as well. Because um, you know, as soon as you become more connected with what's going on inside, you start to discover what actually is most meaningful to you, mm-hmm. and where do you fit in not only the physical landscape of the natural environment but where do you fit in the landscape of this is my role in society this is my role yeah. in how do I pass this legacy mm-hmm. of environmental conservation onto other people yeah I think about these things often and was a driving force behind starting this podcast and my various other projects to attempt to engage people yeah I, I tend to have the philosophy that a person fundamentally cannot care about something they don't know about. So for me, it's awareness. A lot of it is awareness. It's a first step and it's, yeah, it's foundational. Mm. It's you need to, which is why someone like David Attenborough is so important. And, you know, when he eventually dies, having, uh, I don't know how we could possibly replace someone like that. Mm. He's probably done more for the biodiversity conservation movement than any other human that has even come close like yeah yeah it's hard to it's hard to measure that that's that's for sure he's Um, the reason i got into this mm -hmm. you know being i remember being a young kid and watching the documentary the private life of plants i probably have mentioned this on the podcast before um (laughs) that documentary made me see plants as you know these have you seen this film it was when Uh, time-lapse photography got good. So I I believe it was 1994. So it's a while ago now. Um, And they have these high-speed or sped-up images of things like uh, dotter laurels and bramble vines. Mm. And they're they're moving, they're searching, they're Mm. sensing their environment. And I was like, oh shit. (laughs) (laughs) They're alive, alive. I know they're alive, but they're... Responding to stimuli. Exactly. Um, and that, for me, that was my catalyst. Mm. And then from there, it was an interest. You know, the diversity really captures me. You know, I, I kind of find it ironic that when I was a kid, I spent so much time playing a game like Pokemon, where I'm collecting and classifying <laughs> yeah, <I> know, yeah. <laughs> artificial organisms. And around me is... There's 12 million Pokemon you get it going. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But, I mean, I do credit that to some degree of, I don't know, fostering that enjoyment of collecting and classifying mm. even if it's a mental collection you know collecting the plants in my mind or yeah. birds in my mind yeah absolutely uh, yeah. yeah people like David Attenborough 
you know, Steve Irwin as well is a True. really good Australian example. And, and I, you know, I hesitate to say no one has replaced him and mm-hmm. his role. People certainly have differing opinions. I mean, especially being a Queenslander, right? Like, that that's the state that really needs, needs Steve it. Irwin. Yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> Absolutely. What would he think about the Barrier Reef? Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, he, he did it in such an accessible way mm-hmm. as well. You know, he's a fantastic, passionate communicator. True blue Aussie, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Making that connection. Um, you know, language is so, is so important in that as well. Like, being the bridge between mm-hmm. a concept and people's relatability. Yeah. It's, uh, it takes a special human being to be able to do that. So for you, doing this podcast, <laughs> being a very relatable guy, well done. <laughs> Thank you. I do try. I do it with passion and love. I certainly do. I certainly care. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely one thing I can see. Mm. So being outside, I love it. I try to do a plus 200 kilometer walk every year. I have successfully done so for the last three years. Um, I'm already planning next year's walk. And you yourself have done some long distance walking. Before you get into the details, what do you enjoy most about doing a long distance walk? Space. Mm. Yeah. Space in um, various forms. The Obviously the physical space of being outside, but also the nature of doing a long distance walk is that you're out there for an extended period of time without the clutter of living a modern western lifestyle Um, you don't have the constant distractions of of having screens in your face or having to run to the grocery store to do shopping after work or um you know, sometimes even managing human relationships can, can be tough and it can be a bit of an escape to go um, for a good bushwalk. But, yeah, space where things can just settle and fall away to the background and, and yeah. you're just kind of left there with... A very simple task. A very simple task and a, a sense of con- contentedness and, and peace. It's just calming, yeah, centering, it's so grounding. Calming. Yes. For me, for me, it's a lot about refocusing. That there's so many distractions. Mm. There's so many distractions. There's so many ways to be dissatisfied. Mm. Yeah, and stripping down your life to, I need to walk from point A to point B. I need to make sure I have enough water and enough food, and a place to sleep. Mm. If you can simplify your life, that is the most human thing. That is the most human thing. Yeah. Traveling under your own foot power, and ideally with the people speed you love. and scale, yeah. Alana and I, my wife and I, did a, a hike in Turkey, the Lycian Way, um, to, along the Teke Peninsula just west of Syria mm. on the Mediterranean coast. <laughs> um, and we deliberately didn't take a fuel stove. So... Not only was I doing those things I mentioned, but I had to include the other thing, which was finding fuel to cook and make a fire. It did get old after a month. After a month of hiking, I was like, all right, this is a little much. But for the first three and a half weeks, it it was great. Like, yeah, simplifying. Yeah. And even in that simple task, you're, uh, you're focusing, you're specifically looking for something in the environment, you're putting your hands on the ground mm. in the dirt around the branches probably breaking the twigs there's that very visceral connection that you're finding you're getting. different sized 
pieces of wood for kindling. Exactly. Yeah, yeah there's so many different layers and just such a simple task that creates um, a pretty pretty deep connection. Yeah. Have you got a walk planned? A new walk? Uh, no, there, there is one that I've um, wanted to be a part of for a little while now called the Larajuri Trail um, around the Kimberley in Western Australia. It's oh, led cool. by the local Aboriginal group uh, and it's... Um, it's run, I think, over 80 kilometres over um, five days or so, but... Uh, that's a good pace. That's, that's nice and slow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you're, you're there with the Aboriginal people who are, who are telling you the story of country and yeah. they're showing you how the resources that you need are presenting themselves to you as you walk through that country. And, That'd be incredible. Um, yeah, I think just experiencing that shift in perspective of instead of it being a you know necessarily a a hardship or something that one has to endure or survive and switching it around to showing you how the land is actually supporting yeah that'd be a nice change for me (laughs) my last couple of hikes have been pretty brutal (laughs) (laughs) but fun and rewarding and challenging and all the the things i'm looking for in those kinds of hikes yeah but i think your the hike that i first talked about with you was your 1900 footprints walk Mm. I was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about that yeah sure well that was probably spurred on by um, motivations that probably weren't so altruistic well not altruistic but um, um, values it was values driven what am I looking for (laughs) you weren't doing it for the walk you were doing it for other reasons or was the the walk wasn't your primary well it wasn't it wasn't connection based what we've been Mm. talking about this whole time it was um but I'm sure it ended up being connected. Oh, absolutely. How could it not? Yeah, I mean... Maybe pretty... we should talk about what you actually did. <laughs> yeah, it's true, instead of talking around it. Um, so, uh, at the end of 2017, I spent three months walking from uh, Adelaide to Hobart uh, with the idea of walking one kilometre for every threatened species in Australia as a awareness-raising exercise, basically, and... and uh, raising funds for a few different conservation projects really is an excuse to do more awareness raising. Um, so it took me along the coast uh, from Adelaide to Melbourne and then uh, caught a ferry across to Tasmania and did a big S up through the Tarkine, down through the central Midlands region, hit the east coast and then down to Hobart. So I got to do the Great Ocean Walk and the uh, Overland Track as part of that as well. But most of the time was just walking on the side of the road with mm-hmm. a a converted pram that I put a plastic box and a solar panel on to carry all my things and a big decal that said what I was doing so people could stop uh, me on the road and, and and I could have a chat with them and that was really the whole purpose is to just um, yeah. raise a bit of awareness and have a really human element to the scale of, of doing it at that speed uh, which was perfect because I got to see the environment change and the seasons change as I uh, went throughout those three months, but also people could could stop me if I was on a bike or on a horse or in a car. Obviously, yeah. it would have been a very different story. Yeah. But um, also, they're probably wondering what the hell this guy was doing with a pram. Exactly. That would yeah. have been my first question. Yeah, yeah, and it was <laughs> most people's first question, and I think because you know they were they were being vulnerable in a way in stopping on the side of a highway, yeah. um, asking me what I was doing. And that was a really great um, grounds from which to open up that discussion because 
they were vulnerable, then I could kind of be vulnerable and, and ask um, them about their life as well as them asking me about the project. And, and it was really effective in just developing the, a sort of a deeper level of connection um, yeah. to begin with. Very personal. Exactly, you know, yeah. It's much more than a post on Instagram. Yeah. You know, it's actually a guy out there yeah. with a pram. Yeah, and <laughs> people seeing, you know, people love to see when someone's passionate about something and yeah. and the amount of uh, generosity uh, that I experienced along that journey and genuine interest and support from complete strangers um, was really, well, for one, it actually, to a, a great degree, really refreshed my sense of, um, of faith in humanity, um, yeah. which was really special to experience, um, but also showed me that, um, that yeah, p- even people from walks of life that you wouldn't expect uh, will show interest and support in yeah. ideas that, may, that they might not expect yeah. if there is that level of connection. I feel like it's different when there's a face, right? It's mm. so different when there's a face and it's not someone coming, it's not, you know, someone from the Department of Environment coming to your property and telling you to do this and that. It's, it's a guy walking for something he believes in it's yep. so different and people can can relate to that much more than they can with a stick of the law or yeah or you know numbers in a document you yeah. know like i think yeah. probably um i don't want to say a failure of of people working on climate change but probably something that uh unfortunately the discussion has revolved around a lot of the time is the the numbers yeah. of climate change rather X than... X amount of degrees of warming. Yeah. Not and some Bangladeshi family's got to now literally move their house off the shoreline absolutely. because they're getting smashed by storms. Exactly right, yeah. yeah. And that human element is something that, um, you know, naturally so is much more tangible to us as a human community than is perhaps the ice caps melting or something like that. Um, so... So it is super important to, to kind of consider that when we are looking at the conservation movement generally as well as how can we how can we make it personable, how can we make it mm. relatable and tangible to, to everyone? Because we know it is. It's just yeah. that how do you tell that story? We're all people. Mm. We're all evolved the same way. Yep. Tristan, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a lovely chat and I'm filled with more determination and hope than I was when I started this conversation. I'm super glad. Thanks for having me. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. (laughs) We'll have you on again next. (laughs) Take it easy. Bye. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. This podcast was hosted by me, Bradley Bianco, and produced with my dedicated team, Christopher Jolly, Mile Tarrin, Adam Toombs, and music by Darcy Whitaker. If you'd like to support the production of this show, please consider joining the Biology Society as a member at www.biologysocietysa.com. If you're enjoying this content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight.